Well, we're reading from Matthew chapter 24, uh, verses 45 to 51, page 830 in the small print. Matthew 24, pages, uh, page 830, verses 45 to 51. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the words of the Lord Jesus, our great prophet, our great teacher, and our wonderful saviour. And we pray that as we think about this small parable here this morning, Uh, that you would uh, help us to see the urgency of the things of which Jesus speaks and the right response that we must give. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, if you've been following through on this series from Matthew chapters 24 and 25, you'll know that we come uh, to these last few verses of Matthew chapter 24 this morning. And uh, that in the verses previous to this, that we've covered quite a lot of territory. The theme we've been thinking about in Matthew 24 has been the second coming of Jesus, his return. And I've deliberately tried to avoid being sensational or being extreme in the things that I've said, but have sought to bring to your notice just what Jesus said would happen. As we've noted, we've gone along, we've seen that Jesus has very helpfully described the circumstances of the fall of Jerusalem for the sake of his disciples way back then in the first century. And from that, he has leapt into or jumped to the events relating to his coming which will coincide with the end of all things, the end of the world. And this, of course, directly applies to us, to us who are much closer to the end of the world than the disciples were at the end of the first century. And if you've missed any of these messages and want to revisit them and feel like you've missed a cog somewhere, well, you can do that. Just go to our website and you'll find all of the messages the ones recorded here on that website and you can pick them up and put them all into context once again. Now where we left off last week was at this point, that we all need to be ready for Jesus to come back. We have to be ready because he hasn't told us when he will come back. And we noted last week that this carries a sense of urgency about it. 
we always need to be ready because the time and the date, as Jesus said, is unknown. That hasn't stopped people trying to work it out, of course. And it won't stop people trying to work it out. They're still doing it. But if Jesus had told us the when, then we would naturally wait until that day and then get ready. But he hasn't told us the when. He's left that a secret. And so the need remains. Always be ready. Now from here to the end of chapter 25... Uh, Jesus will tell us four parables. In fact, all of chapter 25 is taken up with three parables, which we'll get to later this month and next month. And the first of these parables is found, as we've read here this morning, verses that have at their bottom line this contrast between servants. On the one hand, the faithfulness, of what's expected of a faithful servant, a good servant, who is seemingly prepared for his master's return. On the other hand, a servant who's unprepared for his master's return, unfaithful. Let's consider these things that he said. Not so many points this morning, just two. So first, to tell us what it means to be ready for his coming... Uh, Jesus tells us about a faithful and so prepared servant. A faithful and so prepared servant. And to do this, the parable contains elements which would have been immediately understandable to everyone who heard him speak that day. It was common for wealthy masters to have many servants. It was common for wealthy masters to take long journeys Often those journeys were business journeys in which sometimes the whole family would be uprooted from their home and would travel to another place. Or it was simply removal to a summer home or removal to a winter home in some other part of the Mediterranean world. And it would have been standard practice for the master to put the chief servant, the most trusted servant, in charge of all his possessions and in charge of all the other servants. And then when the master came back, that chief servant would give an account as a steward for all of his actions and all that's been done while the master had been away. I've mentioned before about our friends who were in Uganda who once left on a trip only to return much earlier than expected, just an hour or two later, to find that the chief servant had gone into party mode and they were not at all impressed. Now perhaps most of us do not have servants to look after our houses today. I'm pretty sure that none of us do. But we can relate to what Jesus is talking about. Even if you've never had the need for hired help to come into your home, whether that's home help or Meals on Wheels or some professional agency to come and clean your house from top to bottom, you know how you would want that hired help to perform. You know that you would want them to do the very best they can 
and you know what you would want their work ethic to be. And you also know that if you turned up while they were cleaning your house, you wouldn't want them to find them goofing off watching TV or checking out the pantry or the fridge. Keep that in the back of the mind, your mind because that's very similar to the scenario that Jesus is portraying for us. After establishing this scene before us of the master going away, Jesus tells us of a servant's response to the master's absence. And you'll see five things he tells us about this servant. In verse 45, we meet his character. How does Jesus describe him? He's the faithful servant. He's sensible. Uh, by these things, Jesus tells us the qualities that the ready believer ought to have. Sensible, feet on the ground. He's not speculating, he's not dreaming, he's not stopped working to go off into a cave in some mountain or up the top of the mountain to wait for the return of the Lord. No, he's sensibly working, he is faithful at what the Master has called him to do. Then in verse 45, you see the position of this servant. He's not just a servant who has character qualities of sensibility and faithfulness. He's someone who's been put in charge of his master's household. He's a leader. He's been given responsibilities over the household. It's apparent that in the passage, Jesus is especially speaking to his disciples and to those who have responsibility of leading the flock, ministers, pastors, elders, especially and on a wider scale, all believers, because all of us are examples for Christ, regardless of our position in the church. Notice the function of this servant. What is the service he is to render to the household? He is to feed the household, to give them their food at their proper time. The main point there is their job is not to serve their own interests, but the interests of the master. Uh, to look after, yes, be responsible for the good order, but primarily to provide for the needs of the household or the master is away. Now this morning in our reading from Luke 17, we read in another context, Jesus told us in a few verses in another setting, these things that underline the expectations around servants. He said, will any of you who has a servant ploughing or keeping sheep, say to him, when he has come in from the field, come and recline at the table with me. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Then if you look at verse 46, you'll see where Jesus describes fourthly the actions of this servant. The servant who Jesus says is blessed is the one whom the master finds doing what he told him to do when he went away. The servant who is blessed is actively obedient. He is marching to the beat of his master's drum The master told him to do something. The servant who is blessed is doing what his master told him to do. Then in verse 47, you'll see the reward of this servant. What is his reward? He's given more responsibility. 
I think that hints to the truth that when we get to glory, when we get to heaven, there'll be work to do. And what we are doing now is in preparation for the work we're going to be doing in heaven. It's going to be a blessed kind of labour. You're not going to get tired from it. You're not going to hate it and say, oh, I wish I had a different job. Remember the disciples are always wanting to be moving up the ladder of importance, seeking that honour by being placed on the right or the left of Jesus, having that position of prominence and importance. Well, it's interesting here that Jesus says, if you're faithful, your reward will be more responsibility, which will come to you at his coming. But in the meantime, we're all servants We're all serving one another. We're all serving the master. We all gain credit, if I can say that, not salvation, just credit, the master's approval by being servants. Then will be the time for reigning and responsibility when the master returns. But now is the time. Faithful service and humble leadership. So after establishing the expectation that any master would have of his servant and certainly what he would have of us in relation to our servanthood, Jesus contrasts the faithful servant with another, giving us the other side of the coin, the way in which we should not prepare for his coming. He does this in verses 48 to 51, where he tells us of the unfaithful and so the unprepared servant. Now, some commentators here try to make the point that this wicked servant described here is someone who is like a nominal believer. That is, someone who claims to be a believer with his lips but whose actions don't measure up. Maybe there's a case for thinking that. And Matthew likes to highlight the issue of hypocrisy all through his gospel and maybe this is further evidence of the one whose faith doesn't run very deep but maybe that's also pressing the parable too far it's not that the first servant is a believer and the second one only a nominal believer jesus is not trying to create the impression here of two kinds of believers but pointing out the way in which one servant is prepared by being faithful and the other had a different response to his master's absence. It was a poor response, wasn't it? It was a negative response. And so as we are given a description of the faithful servant, so too we are given a description of the unfaithful servant. And these verses tell us three things about him. We note the character of this servant. And we note quite quickly that he's described as wicked. If you don't like that assessment and think it's too blunt, well, think again, for that's exactly what he is. Now, I admit this assessment is a blunt one. You and I normally don't talk about others in our conversations as being wicked, do we? I don't think I've ever described anyone in that way. That even extends to those we know who are not believers. And if you're not a believer and you're here today or you're listening to this, 
you'll be happy to know that we believers don't necessarily sit around talking about non-believers saying, oh, they're wicked people. In fact, we kind of like non-believers, as we should. But here is an ultimate assessment about this servant and in verse 48, Jesus explains why as he unveils the thoughts that are going on in this servant's heart that mean his actions are wicked. Can you see the problem? He thinks to himself, my master is not coming for a long time. He thinks that his master's absence and delay in return gives him a license to explore the evil desires within him. And so he acts out of carelessness and laziness and presumption. We need to stop and remember that. What a man or woman thinks to themselves or says to themselves is often more revealing than what a man or a woman says in public. Think about that. Our true self is revealed, as it was in the case of this servant, when we think that no one is watching. That's why he's wicked, because he followed the thoughts and intentions of his heart. Then again in verse 49, Jesus tells us of the actions of this servant. It's not just within that's the problem. It's soon what's expressed on the outside. It's what's without. This servant beats his fellow servants. He eats and drinks with drunkards. Note there are two parts to this. On the one hand, he abuses his position. On the other hand, his actions indicate that he has chosen sides. And the one he has chosen is not going to be the side that his master is pleased with. And it's not as though this master ought to be disobeyed. The bottom line of all that Jesus describes about this master is that he's a good master. One who, when he goes away, he cares about his household. He leaves people behind and appoints them to take care of his workers. So what's going to happen when this master returns to find how this servant has been behaving and acting? Well, it's no surprise to expect that the servant is going to be taken by surprise because he's not in tune with his master. And that's a warning for us, isn't it? He's not ready to face him. He's not ready to face him because he's not doing what his master said. And then we notice in verse 51 what will follow and that's the judgment of this servant. Again, there's no hiding behind the facts. It's brutal. It's final. He'll be cut into pieces. It's an immediate judgment. Cut to pieces. And then we are told in verse 51 that the place the servant will go to will be a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now again, there's a warning against taking the detail in the parable too far. It's not as if this evil servant ends up in hell. Jesus is going to speak about that in some of the other parables. 
and make that clear, but not in this one. He doesn't end up in hell, but he does end up in a place that he greatly regrets, although it does not appear that from this place of regret that there's any repentance. There's just regret. But it does remind us that when Jesus comes back, as we'll see, In the parables in Matthew chapter 25, this separation that's already been hinted at, this separation will be made, this distinction will be made between those who are his and those who are not, those who are ready and those who are not ready, those who are sheep, those who are goats. And it's a final distinction and it's an eternal distinction. And it has to be said with terrible, terrible sadness that even when Jesus comes and even when that distinction is made, that even in hell there will be those who live with regret and gnash their teeth at Christ in defiance against him. They will hate him maybe more than they have ever hated him before. So Jesus tells us this parable to especially warn us, not just about not being faithful, but that the pattern that we set in life may have eternal consequences. If we're not listening to the voice of the Master, if we're not being obedient, we'll see more of this in the next chapter when we come to the ten bridesmaids, And of them, those who were and those who weren't unprepared, sorry, weren't prepared, and the consequences that came upon the unprepared. The text calls us to do three things today. Firstly, it calls to make a um, sober assessment. Make a sober assessment. The context of these verses in Luke's Gospel that Averill read for us is just this, that Jesus has spoken to the crowds about the dangers of greed, about the dangers of allowing material things to fill up your life, about the man who had everything he wanted but nothing of what he needed. There comes a point in all of our lives then when we have to take stock. And I don't mean just take everything you don't want to the op shop. I mean, we have to realign ourselves with the fact that life does not consist of what you own, but who we are and what we have in Christ. And unless we give time, thought and attention and value to the spiritual riches we have in Christ, we will fall for the earthly riches, which will lead us to nothing, just be a foundation built on sinking sand. Jesus is coming and that fact should spur you to rethink the substance of what makes up your life and ask, am I ready for his coming in the light of his parable? Do I think and act like someone who is ready for his coming? Am I passing his standard of measure? Am I obedient to his commandments? Am I practising obedience? Am I more concerned about my agenda and my kingdom than his agenda and his kingdom? Is he on the periphery of my thoughts and experience or central to them every day? 
Second, and following on from that, the text urges us to make radical changes. You can't help but note the two different long-term outcomes for the two servants. One receives his master's commendation, the other earns his condemnation. You might think those two words sound alike. You're right. But if you think they mean the same thing, you're wrong. To be condemned is nothing like being commended. They stand at opposite ends of the spectrum, as opposite as heaven is to hell. So in this parable, Jesus adds this one extra layer that he wants us to take note of. His return will usher in eternity and what theologians call the eternal state. And if it's said of the return of Jesus, that if that return of Jesus is the living hope of the New Testament, then what is the outcome of not having that living hope? It could be that we may well miss out on the joys of the kingdom he will bring. It could mean we miss out on the daily dose of joy that this fact should inspire in us. But worse than that, it could mean we end up facing the one who is coming with a certain amount of dread, fear, rather than, come Lord Jesus, come. Third and last, the text should inspire us to make some needed preparation. See, we need to take seriously the need to be ready for his return. As children, most of us played the game I talked about earlier, hide and seek. And we would say, ready or not, here I come. Or here I come, ready or not. And you could say that those are the words that flow to us from Jesus this morning. Ready or not, here I come. But this is not a game. It's a serious call for us to be ready and prepared for his return. And being ready doesn't mean speculating about the nature or the timing of the end times or researching theories about when he will come, though he has said no one can know. Instead, watchfulness means faithfulness. To be ready is to be faithful. To be faithful is to be ready. There are duties to be discharged as believers which are daily, hourly, moment-by-moment responsibilities. And the person who is ready for the Lord's return in the parable is the one who is doing what his master has told him to do. Trusting and obeying, his priorities are right, his heart is right, he is treating his brothers right. J.C. Ryle said, true Christians aren't to live like good servants whose master is not at home, but they should seek to keep their hearts in such a frame that whenever Jesus appears, they will at once give him a warm and loving reception. You see, the faithful servant who does what he's asked to do is ready for his master's return because he's wanting his master to return. He loves his master and he's faithful. And as you are faithful, so you will be ready. That is how you prove to be ready for the coming of the Lord. Which leads me to ask, 
Are you ready? Remember, no matter what you answer, whether you said yes or no, he's still coming, ready or not. May God help us all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bring thanks to you for this wonderful little parable that Jesus left us. And as we've explored it in part today and thought about the responsibilities we have as servants of yours and the master who's gone away but is coming again, we'll hear more about his expectations. Have we fruit to show? Have we something to give him when he comes back? Are we awake? Are we on his side? Please help us to think and sit with these things and think through them and think over them so that we will not be like the wicked servant who thought to himself, my master is delayed. But we'll be the servants who love that master and want to do everything that he has said. Grant us this, Lord, because we cannot manufacture that by ourselves. Please help us to be on the right camp. When he comes, we pray this in his name. Amen.